This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Does the author of Luke Acts write off the Jewish people? Or does his presentation demonstrate that hopes for the restoration of Israel were very much still alive within the early church? Join us as we speak with Isaac W. Oliver about his recent monograph with Oxford University Press called Luke's Jewish Eschatology, The National Restoration of Israel in Luke Acts. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Isaac Oliver received his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan and is an associate professor at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Bradley University. He's edited and published several works on ancient Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, including Torah Praxis after 70 CE, Reading Matthew and Luke Acts as Jewish Texts by Moore Seebeck in 2013. Isaac, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Isaac, would you introduce yourself a bit for our audience, where you're from, and how you got interested in Judaism and Christianity? I will, and uh, I think that my my personal journey is, in this case, very pertinent, because um, in some ways, uh, the study of Judaism and Christianity is really a study, for me, of self-discovery. It's not only that, but it is definitely a a personal journey. I was born, let's say, uh, in between Judaism and Christianity, or with the two in some kind of unique, I would say, even idiosyncratic uh, way. Um, my my mother was uh, born and raised Jewish uh, to uh, German Jews who had to, to flee uh, Germany during the 1930s and eventually found refuge in, in Switzerland during World War II, and she was born there. A refugee, and then after World War II, uh, the family moved to Brazil in post-war Europe. Um, and she grew up Jewish, but later during her adult years, as a young adult, she became a Seventh-day Adventist, which you know is a, I would say, a, a minority within the uh, Protestant uh, Christian world. But uh, she became part of that that church and. Uh, some of the reasons for that were the health message that really attracted her. Um, many Adventists are vegetarians, and she wanted to be vegetarian. Uh, most Adventists refrain from eating some of the forbidden uh, meats that are outlined in, in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There was, of course, the Sabbath, which was meaningful to her. And so for her, it was in some way not a conversion in the sense of abandoning Judaism, in her eyes at least, um, but uh, kind of coming back to to Judaism in a different way um, because she had 
although having been raised Jewish, had eventually just stopped practicing the, the Judaism. On my dad's side, he was uh, born and raised Baptist, uh, but eventually became a Seventh-day Adventist as well, born in Brazil. Um, there is the claim, although there's no proof, that uh, there is Jewish uh, Sephardi ancestry on my dad's side, but it's just an oral tradition. Uh, many, many Brazilian Jews, as many Latin American Jews, have some, some Jewish heritage due to the, the history, the particular history of the Sephardi Jewish community in that, in that world. In any case, he became a, a Seventh-day Adventist uh, and also then a pastor, a uh, minister. And uh, once my parents married, they decided they wanted to share share their faith with um, with with Jews. And they, they their belief was that Jews should uh, come and join the Seventh-day Adventist Church and that this would be a space where um, Jews and Christians could come together. Uh, the idea being that Jews would not have to cease being Jewish in, in a cultural sense. They could continue to observe their, their rituals, uh, keep the, the Sabbath, not only the Sabbath, but all of the Jewish festivals and all the other practices. Something that was rather unique and unheard of in the 1960s, we're speaking, in Brazil. So, I mean, all of this uh, spiel is just to say that I was raised in this, um, let's say, synchristic, although it, it, that's maybe a, a negative word. Uh, a Jewish um, slash or dash Christian household. Um, and my parents always told me, although we were members of this uh, Protestant uh, Christian uh, denomination, that I was Jewish growing up. I didn't quite know what that meant, uh, especially after we moved out of Brazil. I was born in Brazil, and then we came to the States, and my parents uh, lived in the States for, for many years, and then were missionaries for the Adventist Church in, in French Guiana, where there are there is no Jewish community. Um, so for most of my my childhood and, and my youth, I, I lived among uh, non-Jews. And so I didn't know what it meant to be Jewish or what Judaism was, even though my parents had planted this idea in my mind, right? You're Jewish, don't forget you're Jewish. So later in college, I wanted to learn more about my, my Jewish roots. And that led me to spend a year at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where um, I just did, you know, a full immersion into Hebrew, took all the courses I could on Judaism, on Jewish history, on Israel, you name it. Um, and gradually, I became more and more intrigued about learning about how did Judaism and Christianity become two separate religions if Christianity was originally um, just a Jewish movement. Um, and this gradually led me to pursue graduate graduate work in in the field and i did a phd at, at the university of michigan in judaism and, and christianity in the greco-roman world uh today i simply identified myself as jewish and i'm part uh, at least nominally of the reform jewish movement so that's where i currently am in my my journey for spot if we're speaking about a spiritual journey but uh, the academic journey is very much interconnected with my, my personal journey and this background of being raised with, let's say, multiple identities and trying to make sense of the confusion. In some ways, I still am, right? Uh, I was born to, a let's say, a multi-religious household, a multinational and a multi-linguistic household where we spoke many languages, lived in many countries as well. And so, um, yes, this is in... Uh, 
the long way, the uh, answer to how I got to the study of Judaism and Christianity. It's, it's a very personal matter for me. Um, I don't think I would have landed in this field were it not for that, that background. So your book's main title is Luke's Jewish Eschatology. Would you describe for us the concept of Jewish eschatology? Yes, it's a good question. Um, so the, uh, you know, when we think of eschatology, simply that's the study of the end of time, right? What's going to happen at the end? Uh, and, um, a Jewish eschatology, there could in fact be Jewish eschatologies, if we want to speak, um, in the plural, just as we might think of Christian eschatologies, right? If we look just at the contemporary Christian map today, there, there are many different ways that, uh, very, Christians conceive of what's going to happen at the end of time, right? So, for example, some think there's going to be a rapture and uh, the Christian believers will be taken into heaven while the non-believers will remain here. Uh, in the uh, church I grew up, there was a very particular kind of eschatology as well about the end of time and that there would be this, there will be this world order uh, and a persecution, a final tribulation before Jesus then comes back and the dead are raised and so forth and so forth. So in, in many ways, you could say that this is just as true about Judaism, that there's not one Judaism, just as there's not one Christianity. Now, having said that, I think there are a number of elements that we can bring together to speak at least of some kind of pattern or a, a commonality uh, despite all of these variations. And so when we look at uh, eschatology in the Jewish sense, and I'm, and I'm thinking here maybe more the, the, the expectations that Jews had during the time when Luke lived, right? Because my book is comparing uh, Luke and Acts, the author who wrote Luke and Acts, uh, what he thought about the end, the end time, in light of the Jewish expectations of his time. So we're speaking roughly the first century. Uh, so what are the common elements? Uh, to generalize and simplify the picture, and then, of course, as they say, the, the devil is in the details, but generally speaking, I would uh, qualify Jewish eschatology as collective. Um, it's, foc it's focused more on corporate uh, restoration, corporate salvation. So the individual matters, but the individual is part of a community, right? And so the concern is with a much larger group of people. In the case of Jewish eschatology, of course, there's the people of Israel. How is the people or the nation as an entirety going to be saved? Uh, and then, of course, the other nations of the world, too. So the entire world. So there's an emphasis on the collective, on the corporate. I would also say that there is a concern with uh, um, con a concrete manifestation of this salvation. At the end of time, deliverance is supposed to come. Deliverance, however, is supposed to be experienced in a concrete way. Uh, it's going to be it's going to impact our lives in a tangible way. So that means socially, that means economically, that means, I mean, our health physically, we're going to feel better, we're going to live longer. Um, it's uh, something that is not purely or only spiritual, although the spiritual also matters because at the end, finally, 
the people will follow God's ways. Um, so, yeah, these are some of the common elements. Uh, how does that, how is that experienced uh, tangibly? Well, at the time of Luke, the people, the Jewish people are dispersed. So Jews were hoping for, many Jews at least, were hoping for the Jewish people who were scattered abroad to come back to their homeland, uh, to regain autonomy, to see their city rebuilt, right? To see Jerusalem rebuilt and restored, um, to live in peace. Uh, these are the kinds of things that I think you'll find in many texts, Jewish texts of the period that speak about uh, eschatology. And many of these elements continue to be part of Jewish eschatology or eschatologies today. From your perspective, scholars and perhaps many in the Christian world have misread Luke's writings, either neglecting or denying that Luke's presentation is in line with Jewish notions of eschatology. Is that right? So the way I see my, my book is part of this, it's part of this much uh, broader um, scholarly trend that we've been witnessing during the last few decades within New Testament studies. After World War II, there's a beginning of a, a certain kind of um, uh, Christian introspection and revisiting of the Jewish heritage of its faith that had been neglected, even suppressed beforehand. And so then we start to see in the after, aftermath of World War II an attempt to recover the Jewish roots of Jesus, first of all, who, of course, is the most important figure in Christianity. Um, and then gradually other uh, gospel writers or New Testament figures such as Paul also undergo this, um, let's call it, I don't know, re-Judaization, re if you please. Um, and so we now speak of Paul as a Jew, no longer as a former Jew. This is common currency in uh, New Testament scholarship. However, uh, in my opinion, Luke has been sort of an exception in many ways to this recovery and appreciation of the Jewish context of the New Testament. Uh, Luke, maybe because traditionally he has been seen as a, as a Gentile, uh, an author of a non-Jewish heritage. And so then this assumption has affected the way how his writings have been interpreted. That may be one of the reasons. There, there might be other reasons there as well. Uh, but it is traditional to see, uh, even in scholarship uh, today, biblical scholarship, I come across very often the idea that Luke uh, was representative of this Gentile Christianity, so uh, therefore non-Jewish Christianity, uh, in, co in contrast, for example, to, let's say, Matthew, which traditionally has been viewed as a Jewish gospel or the most Jewish gospel or representative of a Jewish Christianity, Luke is viewed as sort of like uh, the opposite. Uh, maybe because of my background, um, but then my own in my own academic uh, journey, I found this kind of dichotomy to be strange. When I would read Luke, I would find it to be just as Jewish as other New Testament texts. Um, and so, in fact, what I did with my previous book, which was my dissertation, was to compare Luke's view on 
Jewish uh, matters such as Torah observance with Matthew and to see, well, which one is more Jewish or less Jewish? And in fact, for me, uh, both are just as Jewish and, and share much, much in common there. So the assumption that uh, Luke's uh, theology is not Jewish doesn't just apply to to the eschatology uh, of Luke, but actually applies to how Luke is read as a whole in all kinds of other uh, areas, such as Christology, right? The nature of Christ um, and, and other other themes. Um, you'll find this kind of assumption. It becomes to me a sur- sort of circular reasoning. If you operate under the assumption that Luke was not a Jew, then you're going to find elements in the Gospel of Luke or Acts that you say, aha, you see, there he's speaking like a Gentile. He doesn't know what he's saying when he's speaking about Judaism. This, therefore, proves that he's not a Jew. Um, and what I've offered instead, the way I see it is I'm, I'm experimenting something new, right, which is maybe something we're encouraged to do as biblical scholars. The Bible is one of the most investigated texts, probably the most investigated text of all history. Very often it's hard to say something new about the Bible, especially the New Testament, given its prominence and importance in Christianity. And so I started with an experiment saying, what if we were to start under the premise that uh, Luke and Acts are just Jewish texts, period. And let's see where that takes us. And so I did that with, uh, with Torah practice in my first book. And here with the second book, I did it with eschatology. Um, and so I see this part of, of an, an experiment. Um, and the, the results that uh, have been uh, obtained, I hope, are meaningful and compelling. Uh, but it's the reader's uh, decision, right? And their judgment is their choice to decide. In what ways does Luke's gospel assume and support Jewish eschatology as it unfolds Jesus' ministry? Yes. And the the book really is prompted by a question that I found surprising uh, when I first encountered it during my my college years. I I can't remember when, but suddenly, as I became more aware of, uh, you know, the Jewish context of the New Testament and then interested in studying that from an academic perspective, I remember coming across Acts chapter 1, verse 6, uh, which is really what prompted me to write this book. There, the disciples ask the, the risen Jesus, right? Now, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And I found that question to be surprising. I mean, what is this question doing here? First of all, Having been raised, I must say, in in a Christian context, despite my my parents' uh, heritage, Jewish heritage, raised in a in a context that I think is representative of a wider uh, uh, tendency, or um, how can I say this, um, belief in in many Christian circles that um, the there is essentially no expectation anymore for the people of Israel as an as a collective whole as a nation to experience restoration as Jews had traditionally expected in the first century CE right at that time they were what were many Jews wishing for I would 
uh, underline the point even more after 70 CE when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. There was a bloody confrontation between Judeans and Romans in Judea, and many Jews were taken into exile. Uh, the temple was destroyed, as I said, etc., etc. Uh, the expectations were what? Jewish eschatological expectations. Many Jews were hoping that the exile would end, that they could come back to their homeland, that the city of Jerusalem would be restored, that even the temple would be rebuilt. This remained a very uh, real expectation among many Jews. And in, in, in the Christian tradition as we see it, the tendency was actually to say, well, these were things that actually Jesus dismissed and did away with, especially after he died on the cross and he rose from the death. And here is where we see salvation, especially in a Western context. Uh, salvation becomes, I would say, overly spiritualized. Now, I just speak out of experience from my own background, but my own um, context of teaching when I teach the New Testament to predominantly Christians, they they think of salvation, you know, when I ask them what is salvation, it's equated simply with eternal life, right? So it's my soul goes to heaven, right? I'm saved. What does saved mean? I go to heaven and I live eternally in paradise, right? So here salvation becomes otherworldly. It's just me, right? Jesus loves me. I believe and I am saved, that kind of thing. And this stuff about the Jews being restored as a whole, wanting to experience liberation from the Roman Empire at the time, uh, this is dismissed. And in fact, Jesus came to correct these uh, these mis-expectations, mis if that's a word. The, the true expectation was solely to uh, believe in Jesus so you could be delivered from sin and therefore have eternal life. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss the, the uh, relevance or importance of those kind of beliefs for Christians or the spiritual elements in Jewish eschatology, because there is a very important spiritual element to Jewish eschatology. You need to repent. Repentance, teshuvah, as it would be said in, in, in uh, Hebrew and rabbinic Judaism, teshuvah is necessary for restoration to happen. But then having, having said that, there is still nevertheless this hope that we're not going to be under the yoke of a foreign empire. We're not going to be oppressed, right? Nations shall study war no more, as the prophet Isaiah said. There will be peace in the world. We will live a long, meaningful life. And so lo and behold, the question that the disciples asked to Jesus in Acts 1 Six is no longer so surprising and, and so shocking when you have that in mind. It's nice that Jesus rose from the dead, but his disciples are still expecting what is a traditional Jewish eschatological expectation. So now, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So in that question, you see there the political uh, connotation to restoration because it's a question of kingdom. Right. That's a political word. And then there is a national element, uh, Israel. It's not just the world, but it's also Israel, because here, too, is another place where I think um, in the Christian tradition, what we've seen is this idea that um, 
salvation now applies to everyone, regardless of ethnicity. And so then there's no longer any kind of particular manifestation of salvation as it concerns the Jewish people. Um, I ask the question, why not both? Because this too, I would argue, is uh, common in Jewish eschatology. Israel gets to experience its restoration, but also this is uh, of benefit to the entirety of humankind. All of humankind also gets to be blessed and partake in their own way in this universal restoration and universal um, salvation. So we don't have to have one without the other. We can have both together. Um, and so I think, yes, in, in Luke Acts, we see, we can see a concern for Israel to be saved in the way that it concerns Israel throughout Luke and Acts from the beginning of Luke, the infancy narratives, which is very, very pronounced about these things. It starts out very much with this uh, high expectation that Jesus is the one that is going to bring salvation to the people of Israel and yes, to the rest of the world, but to the people of Israel first, first of all, and that we see this, we can see this theme running throughout Acts. Um, and so uh, Jesus then in Acts chapter one, verses seven to eight, when he answers his disciples, he doesn't rebuke them, like saying, shame on you. Don't you get it? Salvation has nothing to do anymore with um, the kingdom of Israel or with the Jewish people. Salvation is now just about you believing in me and then going to heaven. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't reprimand them for, for asking this question. It, it's a good question. It's a natural question you would expect. Uh, it would be a surprise if they hadn't asked this question, I would argue, in that context. Instead, Jesus just says, you don't know when this will happen. Only the Father knows the time, right? So I see that as uh, an answer saying, look, it's not a question of whether this is going to happen. It's just a question of when, and it's not now. Instead, here you go. I give you a roadmap. Do this in the meantime, right? Be my witnesses started in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then the implication is, the restoration will follow. Now, on several occasions in your book, you note the close link in Luke-Acts between Israel's restoration on the one hand and the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead on the other hand. Can you explain that relationship? And that, that's a very good question. Um, and resurrection is one element I've failed here in my deliberations to mention as a central component, I would say, uh, both to Jewish and Christian eschatologies, right? There's, first of all, in, in Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus, as Paul puts it, and also it's in Acts, is uh, a first fruit, right, of a resurrection, a greater resurrection that is to come, often called the general resurrection. Um, so it's a, it's a central component in Christian eschatology that the dead will rise one day. Um, and it's, of course, coming from this expectation that is central to Judaism as well, was and still is in rabbinic Judaism at least, that uh, when the Messiah comes, or in Christianity when the Messiah comes back, uh, the dead will will rise from the dead. Now, in, in Jewish eschatology, the, the resurrection of the dead at the end of time coincides with the restoration of the people of Israel. Um, and so the, the first uh, text where we have 
it's not a clear reference to resurrection, but we have imagery there that already sets the stage for this kind of connection is in the book of Ezekiel in the Hebrew Bible, the famous uh, vision of the valley of the bones, right? Where Ezekiel sees these dry bones and they suddenly come together. Um, and what is that vision about? Well, the, the, um, the lesson is made explicit in the text itself. This is an imagery of the regathering of the people back to their homeland because Ezekiel is in exile. He's in, he's in Babylon. The people are exiled there, some of them at least. And the hope is, well, we're going to go back to our homeland and be restored there. And so this vision is given to him to, to illustrate, to illustrate that point. Once we have this kind of imagery, then we start to see the connection just always there naturally. In fact, in one of the, probably the first commentary on Ezekiel that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, they make this connection explicit. The restoration of Israel, meaning the regathering of the people to their homeland, um, the recovery of their independence happens when the dead rise. And so then when we go to the New Testament, for someone like Paul, who, who was a Jew, of course, and then simply came to believe that Jesus was the one who had been chosen by God to bring restoration to Israel and to the entire world, for someone like Paul, especially of a Pharisaic background, and we know that Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was proof that the restoration, this more general uh, restoration of the world and of the people of Israel, along with this general resurrection, was just around the corner. Uh, and so in Acts, we see this as well. Uh, in, in several passages, Paul in Acts is saying, look, I'm here because of the hope for the restoration of Israel. I'm here because of the hope of the 12 tribes, which speaks of the collective whole of Israel that they have been longing for day and night. And how is this all tied to, to, uh, to Israel and, and its restoration? Well, Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus is this trigger now, uh, that is, preemptive. It's anticipating what's about to just happen now to all of you. Let's all get on board together so that we can experience this greater, greater restoration that is about to come. So, um, yes, these two have always been integrated together because restoration and resurrection in Jewish eschatology were supposed to happen at the end. And then what we simply see in the Christian eschatology of the first century, which for me is just a, a variation of Jewish eschatology, is the belief that the time has now come through Jesus. Jesus has overcome death. This means, therefore, that Israel's restoration is about to happen. The picture you paint for Luke-Acts reminds me of the closing chapters of the New Testament, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, with the nations streaming to the New Jerusalem, just like we read about in Isaiah 2. It's fascinating that it is Jerusalem, the capital of Israel's kingdom. Um, yes, I think, uh, you know, Revelation of John, there we see something quite similar. Uh, first of all, if we look at, uh, for example, chapter 7, I believe, where we have the 144,000, that has, of course, as many other numbers and images 
in this apocalypse captivated the imagination of many. And I know there are many interpretations. Oh, is this a symbolic number? Is it a literal number, etc.? But if I'm looking at the revelation of uh, John in a first century Jewish context, I see the 144,000 and then I see uh, listed explicitly 12,000 from each tribe, right? And then right after that, I see the great multitude that comes after. So for me, this is like typical, I would say, of Jewish eschatology. We have, first of all, a collective restoration that is promised and anticipated for the for the people of Israel represented by the 12 tribes thousands of them and then also along with them the restoration of the nations the salvation of the nations represented by the great multitude and indeed then what we see later in in revelation is our references to to the resurrection to the resurrection that's supposed to happen uh, at the end time, and then phrased in a very Jewish way, because as you just said, it's Jerusalem that's going to come down. It's going to have 12 gates named after the 12 tribes. And so here we see also, again, a nice, another fine example, I would say, of this confluence of uh, restoration tied to resurrection um, that doesn't efface the distinctive identities of each entity, worth another monograph in its own right. Are there any new monographs you can tell us about? So I had hoped after this uh, second book on Luke to be done with Luke um, and to be able to write on some other, some other matters. Um, I had, uh, and I still have, and we'll see if the, the heavens allow to, to write a book on, on Paul. I know everybody wants to say something on Paul. I, too, want to say something on Paul and, and his uh, Jewishness. Uh, but that has been put on hold for now because uh, I received an invitation, a very nice invitation, one that was too tempting um, not to accept, to write a, a, a full-blown commentary on the Gospel of Luke. So a monograph, you know, 500-page commentary on the Gospel of Luke for this new um, and exciting Bible commentary series that's going to come out with Oxford. So there's going to be a, a new series, the Oxford Bible Commentary Series, each book of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, <clears throat> and I believe also the uh, apocryphal or deuterocanonical works will be assigned to different individual scholars. And they asked me, would I be interested in submitting a, a proposal to to write on on the Gospel of Luke? I uh, gave it some thought, and I think for a still a rather young scholar as myself, it was too tempting and promising of a project to to set aside. And so I'm back to Luke again. Is basically <laughs> what I'm saying here. I'm going to write a, a whole commentary on Luke, uh, hopefully in this life before the eschaton. And the end of time. <laughs> I hope to have it done. Isaac, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been great hearing about your book. Well, thank you. And uh, I hope uh, those uh, listening uh, found this uh, interesting. And we'll take a closer look at the book and see what it has to say. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies. Until next time, goodbye. Okay.